I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that perhaps in anticipation of it, you would have already turned to Matthew 15, but if not, that you would turn there now. Matthew 15 and the passage that we will be focusing on that Janet just read for us is on page 821 of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs in front of you. Please use one of those and even take it with you if it would serve you. If you'd like to give it to somebody else as well, that would be great. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. I suppose, uh, as you may already know, or perhaps most of you already know, our youngest son is three. And as such, the stage of life that he is in is one that includes asking a lot of questions. Any of you who have ever parented a three-year-old know what I'm talking about. It is this simultaneously beautiful and a bit bothersome thing. It is both adorable and annoying at the same time. And the most popular question, at least in our experience at the moment with our youngest, is why? And of course, sometimes that can be a bit of a talk-backy thing, but sometimes it is also a genuine desire to learn and understand being expressed by them. Little ones getting older want to be part of the bigger picture. They want to be (laughs) included in what's going on. So they want to know why something is happening or why they can or cannot do a certain thing. And they are awfully persistent in their asking of that question, aren't they? You know, I think sometimes we need to do a little more persistent question asking when we come to the scriptures. A persistent, inquisitive spirit would be good for us who are studying the scriptures. Obviously, sometimes reading a certain passage can be pretty straightforward. The logic in it is clear. The progression of the story and the mission of the characters in that story is is rather obvious. But sometimes you read a passage of scripture and you come away with a lot of questions At least that happens to me sometimes. I think it's a good thing for us to lean in to those questions. And so what I'd like to do together today is ask four why questions of the passage before us today. Everything that precedes our passage in Matthew 15 is leading up to it. Jesus in the end of chapter 13 is rejected by his hometown and he goes on to perform miracles in other regions instead. In chapter 14, he feeds this massive crowd. He walks on water. He heals the sick in Gennesaret. And now here in chapter 15, at the beginning of it, there was this momentous confrontation with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. And now 21 of chapter 15 says this, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. I think that ought to lead to our first question, which is why did Jesus withdraw to a Gentile region? I suppose most of us are probably not intimately familiar with all of the geography of the Palestinian region of Jesus's day. Probably the place that you think of most when you think of Jesus's ministry is Jerusalem. It's where his ministry sort of culminated. His triumphal entry, his crucifixion and resurrection are all in and near Jerusalem, all of the events taking place there. But there are a lot of other places that Jesus ministered in. 
And a lot of them were Jewish areas, such as the Galilean region, that perhaps also comes to mind when you think about the geography of Jesus' ministry. Towns like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Nazareth and even Gennesaret, as we just looked at. However, not all of the regions that Jesus ministered in were Jewish. And that is the case with the setting of our text today. It is this Gentile region known as Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you have been a student of the scriptures for some time, I imagine Tyre and Sidon sounds familiar to you. But some of you in this room are newer to the Christian faith or still exploring it, not quite sure what you think of it. And so perhaps you've never heard of Tyre and Sidon before or just don't recall if you have heard of it before. This is what the prophet Joel says in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, in reference to Tyre and Sidon. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily, for you have taken my silver and my gold. You have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border." Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. This is judgment language. This is the Lord speaking through his prophet and speaking of Tyre and Sidon in not exactly the friendliest of terms. And so Tyre and Sidon was not just Gentile in the sense of being non-Jewish. They were Gentile in the sense of being Pagan enemies of God known elsewhere besides Joel 3 for their great wickedness. In fact, Tyre and Sidon have already been referenced by Jesus in Matthew's gospel. If you were to turn back maybe a page or two, you would see in chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, Jesus pronouncing woes on these unrepentant cities in the Jewish region. He says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now there's a whole lot there, and we've actually gone over this already many weeks ago. But here, clearly, Tyre and Sidon is used as an example from the Lord of a place of unrepentant wickedness, such that Jesus is saying even they would repent if they'd seen what I did here. So the point is, Tyre and Sidon are not exactly known as a bastion of righteousness, and yet that's where Jesus withdrew to in verse 21 of Matthew 15. And I think the reason that Jesus went to this Gentile region is actually a two-part reason. The first, perhaps a bit more big picture, and the second more personal and specific, which we'll see as we go along here. Take, take another brief glance at the passage preceding our text. This, this conversation, if you can call it that, between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders had been a tense one. 
If you were here last week, you heard us talk about this. If you weren't here and you didn't get a chance to listen to a recording or anything, you can just glance and see that Jesus had charged the Jewish leaders with breaking God's law, with voiding God's word, with hypocrisy. He'd referred to them as the object of accusatory prophecies. He had made his own rabbinical pronouncement in contrast to their teaching thus putting himself over them and their teaching. And so in essence, what had happened in the text before our passage today was that the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the true king of the Jews, had taken a kind of oppositional posture towards the religious leaders of the Jews. And what did he do next? He left the Jewish region. Craig Blomberg says that Jesus ideologically left the Jews in that confrontation and then geographically left them in a poignant symbolism. And of course, we know that doesn't mean that Jesus gave up on all the Jews and didn't care about them anymore. We'll see this in the rest of our passage. But I think part of why Jesus headed to Tyre and Sidon was to make a statement about how the Jews who rejected him would receive the consequence of their rejection, which is his ultimate departure from all who would reject him. But I don't think that's the only thing that's going on here. I don't think he was simply or merely only making a statement about the ideological distance between him and the Jewish religious leaders. It turns out in our text, he's also got a specific person that he's going to help. And verse 22 makes this clear when a Gentile woman from this Tyre and Sidon region meets Jesus and asks him to help her. And so why did Jesus withdraw to a Gentile region? He did so to withdraw from Israel and bring hope to the Gentiles. Take a look again at verse 22. And behold... A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Here, another of our main characters in this story enters the stage. The woman is in need and she asks Jesus for help. And that's the second question's framework. Why did this Gentile woman ask Jesus for help. Well, on the surface, it's quite obvious. The text tells us she comes to Jesus because her daughter has a demon. And so it makes perfect sense that anyone really would ask Jesus for help. But what if we ask the question this way? Why did this Gentile woman ask Jesus for help? As I've already said, the people in Tyre and Sidon were known as being pagans who rejected God, who opposed God's people, who acted in heinously wicked ways and had earned for themselves, therefore, the just judgment of God. But I think that's where the answer to this second question becomes more clear and where we see that the answer to this question goes beyond a simple though accurate reference to her earthly need. Because what we see here is that even she 
recognized that he was Messiah. That's the answer. This woman came to Jesus for help because she believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And perhaps we would say, how could this be? She was a a Gentile. She was a woman with pagan, God-hating, Israel-opposing heritage. She and her people were diametrically opposed to the Jewish people and the Jewish religion and the Jewish God. And yet here she is calling Jesus Lord, Son of David. That ought to stand out to you. And you might observe that just because she used the word Lord here doesn't mean she thinks that he is the Lord, like you and I might say. After all, you might have called many people Lord in that day as a sign of respect. But she doesn't just call him Lord, does she? She also calls him Son of David. In other words, this pagan Canaanite woman knew something about Jewish prophecy and even Jewish history such that this pagan Gentile Canaanite woman had come to believe that Jesus was the son of David, the promised Messiah of the people of God. Now, we're not given a clear window into all of her thinking in this text, what exactly she perhaps had heard or perhaps even been taught. Maybe she had a Jewish friend who had told her these things. But we just know that this is a Gentile, pagan, Canaanite woman who calls Jesus the son of David, referring to him as the promised one of whom it had long ago been said would bring salvation and healing and peace and joy. And so the text tells us, as Jesus withdraws to this district, this woman comes out to meet him and cries out for help because, according to her own words, she believes that he is the Messiah. However, the immediate response that Jesus gives her is not what I would expect, and perhaps not what you would expect either. Look at the beginning of verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. And so here's where I bet some of us had a question pop up in our minds as soon as Janet read this text for us a few minutes ago. Wait a minute, Jesus ignored her? Isn't Jesus compassionate? Isn't Jesus gracious? Isn't he always doing stuff like this on part of his mission, caring for the needy who come to him and ask for his help? Why didn't Jesus grant her request right away? And that's the third question. It seems as though he is just ignoring her. He comes to the region. She comes toward him and cries out, Jesus, son of David, help me. But he answers her not a word. You might wonder if perhaps he is ignoring her because he is a Jew and she is a Gentile. That was common behavior between Jews and Gentiles. There was animosity, there was hostility, there was division, there was strife, there was even hatred there. That was common behavior between Jews and Gentiles, but that was not common behavior for Jesus. Back in chapter 8, Jesus was willing to grant the request for healing from a Roman centurion. He was a Gentile. But when it comes to this Canaanite woman, 
He did not answer her a word. However, the woman doesn't stop. In fact, apparently in the middle of verse 23, she's sort of bothering the disciples with her persistence. There's a little bit of disagreement among scholars as to the nature of the disciples' request to Jesus. At the end of verse 23, it says, His disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. It could be that the disciples are asking him to send her away without helping her. Just get rid of this Canaanite woman, please. It could also be that they were asking him to help her in order that she would stop bothering them. And the, the phrase there where they say that she is crying out after us, it could be that they are saying she is annoying us disciples. It's annoying to us. Can you please deal with this? She's bothering us. But it could also be that they are genuinely thinking of him and uh, that this retreat to this region perhaps was intended to be a bit more restful after that confrontation with the Pharisees. <laughs> I don't think it really matters which exactly is going on here, at least not in the sense that it changes the big picture goal of Matthew's account of this event, because Jesus' reply to his disciples is more important. They are asking him to send her away. So in other words, whether it was to respond to her and say, go away, or to respond by helping her so that she could go away, Jesus' response in verse 24 is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And of course, that's a bit of an argument to, in support. I'm sorry, that's a phrase in support of the argument that they were asking him to help her so she would leave because Jesus, again, seems to reject a request for help here. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He essentially denies their request to at least address her in some way and says that he is on a mission to rescue the sheep of Israel. The implication, of course, being that he's not there for Canaanites like her. And that doesn't make us feel very good about this passage either, does it? First, he just seems to ignore her cries for help from somewhat of a distance. And now he seems to be indicating to his disciples that the reason he's not even addressing her at all is that he doesn't intend to help her because she's not a Jew. Yikes. We are obviously sensitive to such things in our current cultural climate, but that's not the only reason that this doesn't jive with us. It doesn't really seem to fit with the thematic strands of Matthew's gospel. The spread of the gospel to the Gentiles is very much a sub-theme of Matthew's book here. The passage in chapter 8 that I mentioned a moment ago is a great example of this, and there's, of course, more to come, not the least of which is the very end of the book that everybody loves to reference regarding the gospel being spread to the whole world in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Those all nations are non-Jews, Gentiles, like you and me. So for one thing, the typical Jewish-Gentile animosity cannot be in Jesus' heart. But it would also not be consistent with the rest of the message of Matthew's book. And frankly, 
with the rest of the whole New Testament to interpret this passage as definitively meaning that Jesus did not care about the rest of the world. That wouldn't make any sense. And so I don't think Jesus is apparent ignoring or denying this woman's request should necessarily be read at face value. However, while it can't simply be that he's saying, I'm only here for the Jews, that is actually part of it. You see, Jesus was sent to be God's chosen king of God's chosen people, Israel. He was the chosen Jewish Messiah. He was, as this woman rightly indicated, the son of David, not the son of Hiram I, who was a king of Tyre and Sidon when David reigned. He was the son of David. And so, in fact, what Jesus was saying was accurate. He wasn't, first and foremost, we might say, a Gentile Messiah. Though, as God's redemptive plan continued to unfold in Matthew's Gospel and throughout the rest of the New Testament, it does become clear that he intended all along to include the Gentiles. But he wasn't, first and foremost, a Gentile Messiah. Rather, he was sent to rescue Israel. To be what Adam failed to be as the head of God's people. To be what Moses couldn't be. He, to fulfill what Moses couldn't fulfill. To do what David and Solomon failed to do. To usher in the reign of God over his people in the world and lead them back to where a real and loving relationship with their benevolent and holy creator would be enjoyed. That's what Jesus came to do. And in the mystery of God's sovereign, gracious will, Gentiles like you and me have been included in his plan. Kate and I were invited to a friend's house over Christmas who is a Jewish lady, and she joked with us about food at the holiday season in Jewish families as, com as compared to our families. And at one point, Kate said something about having been responsible for the green bean casserole at our Christmas gathering, and our friend Hannah said, my mom always said that casseroles were the food of the Gentiles. <laughs> she said it in a loving, joking way. And that was a moment where I felt that clear distinction between Jew and Gentile in one specific way. Gentiles like you and me, different from the Jews, have been included in God's sovereign, gracious plan. But not all of that had fully unfolded yet at the time that this Canaanite woman came and pleaded with the son of David to intervene in her daughter's life. And so let's get back to this Canaanite woman. As I've mentioned already, it seems like her cry for help was from a distance because in verse 25, she is now coming right up to him. In verse 22, it's a woman who's coming out, or perhaps that's out of the city or, or something. She's crying out from a distance. She's bothering. Her noise perhaps is bothering the disciples. And then in verse 25, she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. 
You know, our congregation has got some really tremendous moms in it. Moms who have raised children into adulthood, moms who are right in the thick of it, right in the middle of things like potty training and hungry bellies and bedtime routines. Important and ever-deepening conversations with kids as they grow and the need to be totally consistent with discipline and instruction and the failure to be consistent because of so many variables that make it hard. There's so many wonderful moms in this room who are right in the thick of it or who have experienced all of that already. We've also got moms in our congregation who disagree on various secondary matters regarding motherhood and child rearing, like how busy a kid should be with sports or what schooling choices should look like or what methods of medicine and nutrition should be employed. But I am certain that no matter what your views on motherhood, every single one of you moms in this room would agree that you feel for this Canaanite woman. Many of you have endured gut-wrenching trials related to the health of your children. And you would stop at nothing to get that precious little one the help that they need. Some of you may be convinced that your kids have been oppressed by a demon like this woman's daughter. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, I've seen Kate transform into superhero mode and become a boss when it comes to emergencies or possible emergencies with our kids. And that's what all you moms have done and do or will do when your kids are in some sort of serious trouble. And that is exactly what this mother is doing. There's urgency in her plea. She is, in verse 22, crying, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed. And then, of course, the disciples say that she's crying out after then. And then here in 25, she seems to throw all inhibition out the window. And she comes right up to him, gets on all fours and says, Lord, help me. Gives me chills. Brought me to tears as I studied this. It's the cry of every mother who is desperate for her child to receive the help that they need in a time of an emergency. It is a cry of desperate faith. Just a few weeks ago, when we called 911 to bring paramedics to our home to deal with Judah in his postictal state, our tone of voice, our bodily posture, our facial expressions were not relaxed. We were not chill. We were not laissez-faire. There was urgency. There was desperation. There was a kind of faith placed in those emergency responders where we're saying, we need you guys. You're the ones who can help my boy. We put his life literally in their hands and trusted in them. And that is what is behind this Canaanite woman's desperate cry for help. And yet... Jesus still does not grant her request. He actually replies with something that seems offensive. He says in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. He makes this sort of parabolic statement about children and dogs and the comparison between the two and I suspect you can already start to sense what would be offensive about this. It sounds like he is calling her a dog. And pretty clearly, in the parable, she's the dog. And of course, we know Jesus' words were 
always without any sin. And so whatever you think might be the worst thing he might be saying, that's not it. But he is essentially saying the children of the king should get his attention before the dogs do. The children of the king have his priority. Gentile pagans who have rebelled against God and oppressed his people don't deserve my messianic grace. My Jewish messianic grace. That's what he's essentially saying. He's definitely not saying you are beneath me. We are Jews. He's not saying, how dare you speak to me? I'm the Jewish king. You're nothing but a Gentile dog. No, he's not saying that. But he is making a point about the historic and national distinction between Jew and Gentile and how his missional priority relates to it. Priority in terms of like phase one, not in terms of permanent exclusion of everybody else. He was the Jewish Messiah. But I actually think that this question about why he didn't grant her request right away also is a bit of a two-parter. I think the reason Jesus didn't grant her request right away was because he wanted to affirm his priority towards the Jews and to test this woman's faith. You see, I don't think Jesus' Jewish priority was the only reason that he didn't grant her request right away. He hadn't gone on about Jewish priority stuff with the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. And if that was something that he always needed to make clear and reference, it would have made sense for him to say it there too. And as I've already said, the rest of the New Testament is clear that ultimately the whole world was the end goal. And so it's not as simple as that. He is making a point about the Gentiles' unworthiness of his grace and his love for his people. But it's not as if the Jews deserved it any more than any Gentile did. The Jews had been unfaithful to him over and over and over again. And so his point must have also had something to do with this woman specifically and testing her faith. And that actually leads to the final question. Why did Jesus eventually grant her request? Look at verses 27 and 28. Right after he says in verse 26 that it wouldn't be right to take what belongs to his people and give them to her, she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answers her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter healed instantly. Why did Jesus eventually grant her request? Well, ultimately, because he wanted to make a point about faith. And because of his great grace and love and mercy for all. Jesus' comment about dogs and children of the king evidently still did not deter her. In fact, there is a, an interesting and a little bit nerdy linguistic and grammatical case to be made in the original Greek that Matthew records all of this with that her response actually included some feisty persistence. R.T. France, one of the commentators that I refer to a lot, says that the yes here in verse 27 is actually, actually more of a combative retort 
than a meek agreement. And there is a little bit of disagreement, again, uh, in commentators about what exactly she is doing here, if she's being feisty or if she's being meek and just sort of, yes, Lord, I understand, but please help me anyway. But if R.T. France is right, it means that, that it was something like when you're arguing with your spouse or a friend about something and your response to their response is a very quick, yeah, but, instead of a true agreement. And so it's as if she's saying, yes, I know, I'm not one of the Jewish children, but hey, even dogs get crumbs. Help me! This woman had no right to lay claim to Jesus' miraculous messianic power. In a real, national, earthly sense, he was not her Messiah. And that was part of why Jesus wasn't granting her request immediately. The promises of his arrival to save were directed towards his people, not the pagans. But at the same time, those of us at this stage of redemptive history can see clearly through the rest of all of scriptures that were revealed later, the grace of God has always been aimed at everyone. The promises in Genesis directed to Abraham had stated that God would make a great nation out of Abraham to the end that through that nation, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. And so, friends, clearly, all people was always in sight. And friends, Christian brother, Christian sister, beloved Redeemer Bible Church family, this should serve as a call to us to ever be grateful that the gospel has come to us. Oh, fellow Christian, listen, do not be accustomed to the gospel. Do not let the staggering truth that God has set his love on unworthy sinners like you and me be ever lost on you. Just like this Gentile woman had no right to lay claim to Jesus' messianic, miraculous power, you and I have no right to lay claim to Jesus' miraculous, messianic power to remove our deserved judgment, to free us from the power and presence of sin. But because of his grace, he is the Messiah to all who trust in him, including you and me, and including this Canaanite woman. Oh, what amazing grace. Oh, what undeserved mercy. What a reason for constant joy. Jesus clearly had every intention, ultimately, of helping her. But not until after this important point about faith was made through her. He says to her, Oh woman, great is your faith. Here are three observations about this woman's faith. It was humble, it was confident, and it was persevering. It's that faith that Jesus commended in verse 28. Do you see her humility? in this passage. Have mercy on me, she says to him in verse 22. In other words, she knows she doesn't deserve it. That's what mercy is. Undeserved care. 
She's aware that the Jewish Messiah doesn't belong to her. She knows that he's the son of David. She knows that in order for him to respond to her, mercy is going to be required. And so she pleads for it. Mercy, Lord. And even when she comes up to him, her physical posture reflects this. She kneels. She knows that he is the king. So she's humble. But she's also confident. Do you see her confidence? She calls him the son of David. As a Gentile woman, she knows who he is. She knows what he can do. She's not presuming to deserve his grace. She's already made clear that it would be mercy for her to receive anything from him. But she is confident that he can save her daughter because of who he is. Not because of anything about her. And that is an essential point regarding faith. Friends, listen very carefully. Faith Saving faith, real faith, is confident in Jesus. You can have wrong confidence when you come before the Lord. Of course, you can act like you deserve it. You can be expecting him to perform for you. Friends, I have to say, I get squeamish. I don't think I've ever heard any of you say this. If, I have, if, I, if you've said it in front of me, don't worry. I have no idea who you are. But one of the things that I hear people say sometimes that makes me squeamish is, God really came through for me. Now, I know what they mean, and I in no way would ever want to shame you for saying something like that. But let's try to stay a little more plugged into reality. God doesn't come through for us like he's a genie or like he's a superhero, or like he's here to entertain us. And speaking and thinking that way may wind up diminishing who he is in our minds onto this on-call wish-granter, or entertainer, or happiness-giver. Oh, friends, he is God Almighty. And so a right confidence humbly acknowledges no level of deservedness and yet comes boldly to ask. Knowing, believing, even if by a mere thread, that he does have the power to save. That he has the power to save. So she's humble, she's confident, and she's also persevering. She cries out to him, and he does not answer at all at first. And I know, dear friend, that you feel and have felt at times that you have cried out to God with no answer. I've felt it too. But she does not give up. She presses in further. She gets closer. She kneels before him and pleads with him. But still he seems to resist her. But she continues to persevere. She sort of, I'm siding with R.T. France, feistily retorts to Jesus himself about how even a dog has a right to table scraps. And so even she claims the right to a mere moment of his time so that her daughter might be healed. How embarrassing, actually, it might have been for her to make a commotion, to intrude on this increasingly famous rabbi, to even lift her voice above whatever other present noises may have been taking place. And even, friends, the social shame that would have accompanied a woman and a pagan Gentile one at that talking to this Jewish rabbi. But it didn't matter to her, friends. It didn't matter. 
Whatever sacrifice was necessary, whatever it cost her, it was worth it because she was convinced that Jesus is the Savior and she needed his help. Confident, humble, persevering faith. That's what Jesus responded to. And friends, faith is the vehicle through which salvation comes. It has nothing to do with how noble she was or wasn't, how ethical she was or wasn't, what religion she was, because clearly she was not a Jew, or the good deeds that anyone can do. None of those things access, if you will, the salvation of Jesus. It's faith. And it's faith in Him. Simple faith that acknowledges humbly that I am undeserving and totally at the mercy of whatever Jesus wants to do. Simple faith that has confidence in Jesus and in His power, not in the strength of our own faith, not in the sincerity of our belief or believing hard enough. It's nothing like that. It is simply faith in Him. And it is simple faith that persists, that perseveres, that insists on Jesus noticing, as it were, our plight and then begs Him to bring the salvation that we need. Faith is the vehicle through which Jesus' salvation is granted. And so, friend, please trust in Jesus in this way if you never have before. Acknowledge your unworthiness of his grace. Believe that it is only he who has the power to save and then ask him to do so whatever it costs. It's this pagan Canaanite woman all three of which would have been social disadvantages in the context of this Jewish conversation. It's this woman who is commended for her faith. And you may recall, perhaps just one page over, you might not even need to turn, in verse 31 of chapter 14, what does Jesus say to his disciples who knew him personally, who could claim him nationally? Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Sometimes it's those of us who have the most reason to trust Jesus that doubt him easiest. Perhaps because we have become accustomed to his grace. Perhaps we have become familiar with his mercy. Perhaps we begin to feel as though we deserve to not ever be put in a situation of difficulty, trial, pain, and suffering where humble, confident, and persevering faith will be needed to endure. And when those things do come to those people who have grown accustomed to the grace of God and presume upon His mercy, when those trials come, and when humble, confident, and persevering faith is required to endure, they may waver. But beloved of God, while there is a caution and warning here about our faith in God as his people, remember the point of all this. The object of our faith is where all of these elements of faith are rooted. 
the object of our faith is Jesus. He's the one that we put our faith in. He is the reason that we put our faith in him. It's about who he is and what he has done that causes us to trust in him. Humbly. We're so unworthy of his attention and care because of our sin, but we see his grace and we trust in it. Confidently, because his power and wisdom and goodness are immeasurable and unending. And so, while we will struggle with doubt, ultimately, there's not a good reason to. In the end, perseveringly, because we know from his word that he never fails. And so we keep coming to him over and over again, no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes. Perhaps the call of this passage to you is to turn to Jesus in faith. In a way that you've never done before. I mean, savingly. Turning to Jesus as your Savior. Well, then that would be your takeaway from this passage today. Friend, turn to Jesus in faith. The same kind of faith that this woman needing help for her daughter expressed. But perhaps you have already turned to Jesus in faith. The call to you, I'll give you another two-parter. First of all, oh friend, marvel at the grace of Jesus. Be amazed at this Savior and Lord. To extend his mercy and his messianic power to casserole-loving Gentiles like us? Amen. Amen. That's the first call. Marvel at his grace to you and me. But secondly, to practice then humble, confident, persevering faith in our ongoing and continued relationship with Jesus, knowing that just as we came to him in faith, we continue in faith, trusting that through faith every day, he will act on our behalf as our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, it is good for us to be tested through your word and to be reminded, perhaps, of truths that we already know or to be confronted with truth that we have not yet received. And so, Lord, whatever the need for any of the dear people in the sound of my voice, please work your will in us. Please draw those who have not yet turned to Jesus in faith, savingly. And draw all of us who are yours closer to you in our ongoing, everyday relationship through faith in you. Please, as this woman said, help us and be merciful and gracious to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer for just a couple of minutes, meditating on what we've heard.